Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I'm your host, Stuart in L.A., and I'm back for some final thoughts about Robert Ludlum's split personality super spy. We've already explored his true identity in the initial show. He's proven his supremacy in battling a wannabe in the last show. It really shouldn't require a gun pressed to my head to finish the Bourne ultimatum. And yet, dear listeners... That is nearly what it took for me to get through this very painful Robert Ludlum 1990 concluding book. It was only because I knew that folks were expecting me to file a report to let them know how Born Book 3 turned out that I was able to slog through the 737 pages, 130 pages longer than any previous Born book, It is easily one of the most painful reading experiences of my entire life. Seriously, I wanted to toss this book many times into the trash. I was screaming at it many, many times. I kept going because I knew folks wanted to know just how awful it was. So I did it. I pushed through. It took me a month. But I got done reading this book. And I'm here to tell you not to read this book. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're, you're going to say, I love the Bourne identity, and you, Stuart, in L.A., you were just mediocre on it. You didn't like it as nearly as much as I did. And I love the Bourne supremacy, and you didn't recommend that at all. So why wouldn't I love this last book of this trilogy that I've enjoyed so far? It is not as bad as you're saying. Fans are going to be entertained, right? Well, that is the ultimatum that I feel like Ludlum is declaring here. Are you such a fan of my past work and this character, Jason Bourne, that you're willing to accept everything that I'm cooking up here and throwing at you in this very messy finale? I dare you to follow me down every convoluted storyline. I dare you to make sense, much less find entertainment value in all of these turgid storylines. I have to believe most folks are going to say no to this book by page 300. By halfway in, people are going to put this one down. Most people. I, I deeply believe that unless you are a completist and you just want to know how it ends, you're going to push through. I'm certain of one thing. Absolutely every Ludlum fan is going to agree that this is not his best work. That this is not Ludlum or Jason Bourne at the top of his game. This is no one's favorite Bourne Ultimatum. Keep in mind, we're now four years beyond the sequel Bourne Supremacy, and things are harder in general for the best-selling author. Ludlum is now in his early 60s, and the life of heavy drinking and smoking has caught up with him. He's having multiple health problems. And just a couple years after publishing Bourne Ultimatum, he is going to have quadruple bypass surgery. He's going to lose his wife to disease. He's going to just start publishing less. And even more tellingly, he's going to bring in younger authors to help him co-write books and finish ideas. And he's going to do something he 
hadn't done in his first 14 novels. He's going to write sequels. He's going to go back to the well, to previous hits, and just tell more of that story because he doesn't want to create new characters. So Ludlum's best days, most innovative days as a writer, are clearly over. That is not to say that he is unpopular. Sales have dipped. The reviews are harsher. The book's do not spend the time that they used to at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, but they do hit number one. He remains throughout his career. He keeps working until the end. He never retires, and he remains popular with a large base of readers. Now, while Ludlum only brought Jason Bourne out of retirement for the second book, Bourne Supremacy, because he believed that was the character best able to tell a story set in Hong Kong, That is not the case for the 17th book. The third and final Bourne adventure is concocted purely so that he can deliver a crowd-pleasing ending for a character that his fan base really wants to see one more time. And I think one of the major criticisms that Ludlam got about Bourne's supremacy was that it did not include Carlos the Jackal. I know that surprised me. I thought for sure that he was going to turn out to be the imposter Bourne. Ludlam said in interviews at that time that he didn't want to do another Jackal story because he didn't want to glamorize a real-world terrorist. He thought that the more that he wrote about how great a killer he was, he was really making a, a romanticized portrait of someone that should not be thought of in a positive light. But, well, four years later, Ludlam is ready to do just that. He is ready to bring Carlos the Jackal back, and he wants a rematch with Jason Bourne, and they're going to battle it out, and only one of them is going to be alive at the end of this book. Spoiler alert, it's not Carlos. It's worth observing that the real Carlos the Jackal is a free man in 1990 when this is published, and he... While retired from the hitman life, I think he gave that up in the mid-80s, is living in Syria. They have given him asylum. And that just set off visions in my head. I was trying to imagine the guy like walking into a Barnes & Noble in Damascus and buying a copy of The Born Identity and reading a book about himself. And I just, I see him there sitting in a Starbucks just fuming thinking, you know, I dedicated my life to Palestine and people are going to say that I'm in France making high fashions and shooting anyone I'm paid to. Uh, How dare the infidels publish these lies? Um, It's a wonder that Carlos didn't come out of retirement and just whack Ludlum because it is such a discrepancy between his real life and the fantasy that the spy novel propagates. I, I do know that after Carlos the Jackal was caught, he was turned over to the French in 1994. They tried him, convicted him. He was imprisoned in Paris. He then got a lawyer whose sole job was to help protect his image from further libel, that he did not want more things published about him that were untrue. And he goes after people. He is still alive. He goes after people that greatly exaggerate his reputation and his misdeeds in print and film. And I have to believe that the Bourne novels might have played a big decision in that. I have to believe he's at least read one. I've never heard what his opinion might be, but I can't think it's favorable. Not just because he's portrayed as the ultimate bad guy, but just because he he ends up looking so silly and it's so over the top. And again, divorced from all the politics that he was fighting for. 
So when Robert Ludlum died in 2001, there are theories out there, you can check this on the internet, that he was murdered. And everything that I read says that he was murdered by his second wife, who set him on fire to get his inheritance. But who knows? You know, if, if Carlos indeed is someone that has all of these hundreds of minions working for them, he could have snapped his finger and someone could have lit a match. I don't know. Born Ultimatums make some pretty damn crazy accusations about Carlos, and I don't know if he would have stood for it. I know I would have been pretty pissed if this is the way I was portrayed in popular fiction. One of the first things that fans are going to notice about David Webb in this new Born Ultimatum is that Ludlum has really aged the guy. In the first two books, our mild manner hero was a healthy 30-something who could snap into invincible Superman mode at will. For this story, Webb is now a weary 50-year-old professor. He's still married to Marie. He's the father of two young children. But not unlike Ludlum, he has health problems. He is not going to be able to do all the amazing physical feats he's performed in the past. He's slowing down, and that's seen as part of the threat, is that he can no longer handle everything that is going to be coming at him. And the same thing is true of Carlos, that he is an old man too, thinking about his legacy, seeking revenge on all those that have wronged him in his life, and he has this network of people. They're all old men too. Most of them have terminal illnesses. That's why they swear allegiance and sacrifice their life for Carlos is because they don't have that much longer to live anyway. So immediately, I'm sensing this morbid but very compelling autobiographical theme here in which Ludlum clearly seems to be thinking he's writing one of his last books. And so what does he have to say on that subject? What does it mean for a dying novelist to say goodbye to his most popular creation? How autobiographical is Born Ultimatum going to be? I am predicting at the start that this could be the most realistic, grounded story in the trilogy. And then I turn to page two. <laughs> I mean, I, I kid, but it really does not take very long before you sense that something is really off this time, really wacky. The scope of the story is really big. Lullum is not just bringing back Carlos and Born. Every single character we've seen who's still alive from the previous books, I feel like gets a mention or comes back usually for a full storyline that we get encores for all of the soldiers from the Vietnam era Medusa Death Squad. The few surviving Treadstone 72 employees are here. Marie and her extended Canadian family, the government officials that Bourne dealt with in Hong Kong and Paris, and dozens and dozens of new characters they all get major storylines, or at least storylines. I Honestly, it's hard to tell what is a major and minor subplot in Born Ultimatum. The line is very, very thin. I'll tell you what, here's a trick that I do when I'm reviewing a novel for Books and Nachos. I tend to do it with a pad and a pen next to me so that I can jot down anytime I run into a new character. I jot down their name, just a little bit about them, and I know how to follow them. I'll go back to that line and write a little bit more as their story progresses. By the time I finally closed the cover on this novel, that pad of paper had over a hundred characters on it. And I can't tell you if most of them live or die. I mean, I lots of people are brought up, lots of storylines are mentioned, but try as I might, I couldn't even keep track of them all. I'm not sure Ludlum did. I mean, in the first book, David Webb forgot that he was born. 
In this book, there are so many characters, I forget about Bourne. I mean, there is so much going on. It, it lacks not for ambition, I can tell you that. You know, one of the things that really comes through on the page that I suspect is a part of Ludlum's personality is the man just, he loves talk. He's a gabber. He's, his characters just shoot the breeze with anybody, hotel employees, tour guides. I'm betting Ludlum, anyone he met, you know, he traveled the world in order to be able to write all these novels. I think he did talk to everyone. I think he was a friendly, gregarious guy who just had a love for life and people. And that's reflected in his writing. He does not interrupt these characters. The dialogue that they spew is really how the stories develop. I have never seen him just write a line saying, born, spend all day at the mall talking to people and realize this. I mean, we're actually going to get a scene. There's a character in Born Ultimatum who has to cold call several offices in order to find this guy. And basically, we get transcripts. I mean, we it could have been solved in a line, like he called all day, everyone in the book, and only got two leads. No, we're going to get pages and pages of him saying, hello, how are you? Talking to people that have no involvement with the plot, just dead-end cold calls. But we're going to get those conversations in full because Ludlam wants to hear them. It's always been a style I've noticed that in his writing, but here it's just... It's pervasive. It's problematic. I mean, that same character is going to just be indulged with a long reminiscence about his parents that came from Russia and opened a chain of supermarkets in America. And he's just going to think about all of that. Well, why is that important? How is that going to help Webb catch Carlos? It isn't. I mean, yeah, we'll end up going to Russia, but I didn't really need to know about the supporting character's connection to that. It ends up having no bearing in how Carlos is caught and killed. Like many old men, Ludlam just seems to be lost in thought. That part of this journey by saying goodbye to Bourne and all the characters from his universe is about really replaying everything they've done before and giving them the opportunity to explain themselves to the reader in depth. Ludlam's like that uncle you never want to call because, you know, once you get him talking, you just, you'll never get off the phone. But even accepting that, you know, knowing that Ludlam is not doing a fast-paced thriller this time. It's pokey, it's drawn out. I think that there's just some awful plotting in this story that really... I have no problem with the structure. Born Ultimatum, I think, actually has a good understanding about what we want to see for a final adventure. It is designed in three acts, really. The part one, David Webb is going to send his wife and kids to the Caribbean to hide them because he realizes he's being targeted by a killer and he and his old boss, Conkling, are trying to figure out who's trying to kill him while Carlos is targeting Marie and the kids in the Caribbean. Then we get part two, where Webb becomes born, and he goes on the offensive, and he's going to hunt down Carlos where he lives outside of Paris. And that's all going to build to a climax, the part three, set in the Soviet Union, where Carlos was originally trained as an assassin. He's going back there to get vengeance on some long-standing Russian enemies. I think that all the books have had that sort of three-part whirlwind travelogue feel. No problem with that. When I'm talking about plotting, 
I'm talking specifically, I think, about the jump the shark moment that comes around the 300 page mark. A plot development is so absurd, it so loudly announces that this novel has lost its damn mind, that, again, I imagine many readers just setting it down. I know I would have if I were not recording this show. I'll, I'll set it up for you as best I can. Carlos has sent one of his old men assassins down to the Caribbean island where Marie and the kids are, and he's going to frame their murder for Jason Bourne. He's going to sprawl Jason Bourne in blood on the wall after he kills them. And this guy is named Fontaine, or at least that's his code name. And there's this really confusing who's on first routine, because also staying at this island resort is a man named Prefontaine. And everyone's confused. Did you want Fontaine or Prefontaine? And they're both friends with Marie, and they're both old men, and they both are semi-connected to Medusa and Carlos and kind of what's going on right now. But long story short, Prefontaine and, and Fontaine finally get on the same page, and Fontaine agrees not to kill Marie, so Carlos has to come do the job himself. He's coming down to investigate what happens. He actually gets Jason Bourne in his crosshairs. He's holding a rifle. He has his mortal enemy in his sights. He pulls the trigger. The bullet goes through Jason Bourne's neck. This is his signature move. Carlos the Jackal kills people by shooting them through the neck. That's how you know Carlos did the hit, because that is the only way he's ever killed anyone. He's killed hundreds of people this way. Not only does Bourne live through it, he doesn't even seem phased by it. He literally wakes up a couple minutes later shouting like there is a quarter inch hole in his neck. He has no voice box, but he is going to talk for the rest of this novel still. I mean, I was at least hoping that all this stupid dialogue I'm talking about would be minimized now that Bourne can't do chit chat. There's a, a hole in his throat, but no, it's almost like the bullet never hit him at all. No one even seems to notice he has a neck injury. Jason Bourne is so tough that he can take the death shot from Carlos in the neck and keep on screaming. And it gets crazier from there. Because if you don't set the novel down, like I recommend, there are new subplots that emerge. Ones that I, I'm going to strain to tell here. I'm going to condense some things. But for example... We suddenly get a group of gay mafiosos, Lou and Frankie. They've heard about Bourne. They decide if they can kill him, they can make some money. They refer to Bourne as, quote, one hot cannoli who's working for some of the biggest lasagnas in Washington. Everything is about food. They're, they call him a gold mine in their minestrone. And, you know, their big plan is they're going to kidnap Bourne's therapist and make him talk. And we get these pages and pages about how the therapist gets away by telling his abductor who's driving a car that the cavities in his teeth are oral cancer. And while the guy's looking in the rearview mirror, the shrink drives the car into a truck and goes hitchhiking. And a woman that is running from her abusive boyfriend and needs an abortion picks him up and wants him to perform an abortion on her. And they end up at a truck stop. I'm not making this stuff up. This is a born adventure that gives free reign to... Moe the Shrink and his crazy road trip across America. It's capiche? I mean, I can't even tell you what's going on. Meanwhile, Marie, dear beloved Marie, who we all know at this point I am not a fan of, she doesn't like seeing mild-mannered husband David turning back into ruthless killer Jason Bourne. And so when he tells her, 
keep hiding. I'm going to go get Carlos in Europe. She decides to hand off the kids. She knows they're getting death threats, that Carlos still going to try and kill them. But she leaves them alone so that she could hop a plane and catch up with her husband because she's convinced that she knows the streets of Paris better than he does. And also because she believes that if her love is in close proximity, he won't go full born. He will still be a little bit David Webb and thus not lose his mind. Again, it, the concept is like it's Jekyll and Hyde in that when David Webb doesn't get enough love in his life that he turns into the savage killer Jason Bourne. And so while she is running around aimlessly the streets of Paris, he's hanging out in bars befriending an American soldier who wants to join the Foreign Legion, but he's wanted for murder back in the States. I mean, you get the point, right? I mean, I don't think I need to go much further in this. This is bug nuts. This is a positively bug neck story that is just rambling. It's like almost like making it up as you go along. You can't believe that this is the book that Ludlum wanted to write. And while I get that, you know, this review might come across as sounding like this is so funny, but so bad that I'm going to enjoy it for that, even that sensation wears off and you still got 200, 250 pages to go before you get to the end. And the challenge is I had to keep reading every page, every word to keep track of these multitude of characters because I wasn't sure whose subplots would matter. I So little about it has to do with Bourne that I just had to make sure what the hell was going on. So skimming wasn't an option. And I really do not take any joy in this. I mean, it's kind of sad that clearly Ludlum is not in a good mental state. He is not healthy. That is coming through with this prose. But that was also the thing that intrigued me. I mean, the one holdout. I did not think this book could turn it around. I did not think it was going to get better and solve all of these problems and and create good arcs for all these characters. But what I was fascinated with all the way to the end was how is Ludlum going to look at mortality? How is he going to kill Carlos? And is it going to take Bourne out with him? I mean, we all know that Carlos the Jackal cannot survive this time, but will Marie be a widow? Is she going to get David back? Is she going to get Bourne back? Are the two going to become one? Ludlum's answers to that question matter to me, even though I did not care how this story otherwise turned out. I wanted to see how a man that believed he was dying was going to end his relationship with his famous character, Jason Bourne, David Webb. Normally, I have qualms about saying anything more. I don't spoil endings in most of the book podcasts that I do because I want readers to experience it for themselves. I don't want anyone to read Born Ultimatum. I don't want to leave people in suspense about what the story might end like and have them seek it out out of curiosity. There is no good reason to read this book. And so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you don't want to know, turn off this podcast, but 50 pages from the end, Bourne is in Russia. He meets a Russian soldier randomly, and this is the guy that's going to kill Carlos. Bourne doesn't even get the satisfaction of putting his nemesis down. This random new character comes in, punches a button, a room fills with water, and Carlos drowns. And that's the end. Meanwhile, yes, there has been this new Medusa 
that has been exposed through <laughs> cold calling. We realize that they're controlling the world, that, you know, they used to be soldiers in Vietnam and now they control international markets. And so that they're kind of exposed. And I think we're supposed to think that because their names are printed in newspapers, they won't be able to control the world anymore and it will go back to being a free market, not a, a rigged system. Oh, and Bourne kills the gay mafiosos that try to shoot him at an airport. But they do get to shoot the shrink. So that poor shrink only escapes to get shot again. I'm not even sure if he lives. I think it's mentioned that he lives. But you know what? I am not even going to go back and fact check that for you. I'm sorry. Do not make me open this cover again. I am done with this book. The point is, is that I think Ludlum didn't want Jason Bourne to kill. Keep in mind that was the whole conception was that David Webb was an innocent man who pretended to be killer Jason Bourne, but never really assassinated anyone. And that's how he wants to leave it. Although, again, he does kill these gay mobsters in cold blood. So he's not without having notches on his belt, but he does not kill Carlos. And so there you go. That is the ending of the story. I am not an advocate of book burning, but here are 740 pages that are screaming for the oven. I cannot believe that editors let Ludlum release this book. It is no wonder that after the publication of Born Ultimatum, he started working with new younger writers, who again, co-authored many of his remaining novels that, you know, you will see their name in smaller print underneath his. And Ludlum said in interviews around this time, that he wanted to see Jason Bourne and his brand continue for generations. After his death, he wanted to know that his estate and his family were going to be taken care of, and he wanted to see Jason Bourne continue, like Sherlock Holmes. The idea that 100 years from now, people would still be telling stories about Jason Bourne was something that was important to him. So he set it up so that in the future, there will be books with his name on it. I mean, even now, 15 years after his death, he has had many number one bestsellers that the man never wrote that are just done in his name. So I suppose the upside to that is if for some reason you still wanted to read more about Jason Bourne after the Bourne Ultimatum, there are 10 Ludlum list novels that will tell you what David Webb does next. And that's starting with the Bourne Legacy which I don't know much about because I have not read it. I'm not going to ever read it, but I did read a little about it. I know a few things. I know for one thing, it has nothing to do with the movie, The Bourne Legacy, because that movie created a new hero played by Jeremy Renner. And surprise, surprise, this book is going to stick with Jason Bourne. They are not going to pass the torch to someone else. They do change him. Bree apparently gets killed in a skiing accident. The kids get sent off to live with their grandparents and Bourne becomes basically James Bond. He starts bagging babes and traveling around the world and just being a spy. It sounds kind of generic. And the author that has taken over that mantle has said that he doesn't even try to write in Ludlum's voice. He does not want to tell the story the way that Ludlum would have. That, that That's not his mission. He is telling a Jason Bourne story his way. So maybe that's interesting to you. I'm curious to know if anyone reads it, what they think. Uh, again, I'm not going there. I don't want to go there. I may never read another Robert Ludlum novel again. But should you happen to, and you 
and you found out anything interesting, I do hope that you can share that with me because of of course, I have some curiosity. There is still some affection for what began here. But uh, yeah, no more. If you come to the forums or if you come to Facebook, we can chat, Born or any other thing that I'm reading or you're reading. I always enjoy talking with our readers and our listeners. I am going to take a little break from Books and Nachos. I think that I've earned it after this last book, but I promise to return later this fall. There is a well-known science fiction series that I will be delving into. It will also be being touched on over at our sister podcast, Now Playing. Uh, That's also where Arnie, Jacob, and I are watching all of those Jason Bourne movies. So again, if you'd like to hear talk about movies, you can head over there. I hope you join us for that. In the meantime, I know that Arnie is itching to get back to Stephen King and his ongoing Sisyphean project to read and analyze everything that that very prolific author has written. He's got to get through Firestarter, Roadwork, um, a whole lot that is coming this fall in the weeks ahead. I can't wait to hear them. I've read many of those books and I enjoy what he's doing there. I hope you can join him as well. Thanks so much for letting me gripe. Thanks so much for listening and following me on these past three weeks. I have enjoyed it, despite how it might have sound. And I hope you keep reading, and I'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.